Good day, everyone, and welcome to the show. In this episode, I thought I'd tell you about a case I worked back in 2004. We're kind of going to skip the news today. It does involve the murder of a young mother-to-be and the importance of the computer evidence in the case. We'll get to that in a minute, but first, I'd like to talk a little bit about current events, and unfortunately not happy events either. I'd like to talk about the violence against our police officers nationwide that's becoming all too common. I looked up some stats recently. In 2019, there were 57 police officers killed in the line of duty due to being shot, stabbed, and otherwise assaulted, including with a vehicle. In 2020, that number had risen to 64. You want to know how many there were in 2021? 89. Not traffic accidents, not accidental shootings or suicides or drownings. These were intentional acts against the police. 89 officers killed. So far this year, nine officers have been intentionally killed. And just last week, nine Phoenix police officers were injured in an ambush-style attack with one suspect. What the heck is going on, folks? There are so many issues to consider and address on that topic. I'll save it for another show. But today, I wanted to hear a few comments from someone that lives our cop lives and deals with the pain and frustration that we do, but from the other side, a different angle. Today, I've invited Lori Johnson to the show. Yep, that's right. She's my wife. We've been married 38 years, and she's lived every moment of my law enforcement career, both the good and the bad. I'd kind of like to hear how she feels about what's happening to our heroes who protect all of us from harm. Lori, welcome to the show. Hello. Lori, you heard me read the alarming statistics a minute ago. Just as an overall statement, how do you feel about what's happening in today's society related to violence against police officers? That makes me sick. Absolutely makes me sick. And it's horrifying that the voice of the few is being backed and pushed by the media. And it's destroying the structure of peace and order in our society. Uh, it's very, very disappointing to see how people have turned their backs, how, how, how a few, and I won't say that's a majority because it's not. It's a minority of people who have turned their backs on our law enforcement. Lori, what do you think is causing this? Well, this has been brewing for years. I believe you saw it years ago when you were still working the streets. But um, it's a lack of family structure, a lack of, you know, a father in the picture. There's a lack of faith. There's no morals. There's no ethics at all uh, in these homes. You've got kids just running free, and they have no, they're not taught value of life. You know, Lori, back back when I was younger and I was on the streets and stuff, we never saw the disregard for we, – we saw the disregard for human life as they dealt with each other in a community. But we didn't see the disregard for law enforcement. I mean, it was never open season on, on law enforcement like it is now. I, I don't understand any more than you do, but um, did you worry a lot for my safety back then? You know, I didn't. I think a lot of it was because I knew you were doing a job that you loved. And you were happy doing that job. And, you know, if you were to succumb in the line of duty, then I knew that you would have died doing something you absolutely had a passion for. Today, it's a whole different story because it's just, it's random and it's targeted. Sometimes these officers aren't doing anything except sitting in their car, finishing a report or whatever, and, and they're targeted. You know, they're ambushed. So it is very distressing, and um, I don't know 
It's hard having a daughter on the on the police department. It's hard to think about her being out there uh, in this type of climate. It scares me to death. Right. So Lori just said something that I don't think any of you know is that uh, we do have a daughter who's on the police department as well. She followed in her father's footsteps. She's an amazing woman. She's a very good police officer. She's she sees the same thing we saw back then. And quite honestly, she's frustrated, like a lot of officers are frustrated with the way things are today. But uh, I'd have to say that Lori and I both worry a great deal for her safety because, like you say, it doesn't. It's not like some bad cop is is getting a shooting with a dope dealer that he stole money from. We're talking about police officers who are going to a simple call of a disturbance or uh, a traffic violation or sometimes not responding to a call at all, and they're being ambushed and cut down in the prime of their life. So it has changed drastically from those early days. Uh, that's for darn sure. Now, Lori, I know how you feel about the whole defund the police movement, but where do you think that's going? Do you think we're on the rise with that? or? Well, I think there are still communities and cities that are trying to throw their weight around and defund police. But the cities that did that initially to defund the police, they're in a world of hurt right now. And a lot of them are backpedaling, which isn't going to work because once you treat your, your uh, officers poorly, and with so much disregard and so much disrespect, they're not going to come back. They're going to write that off, and they're going to go somewhere where they're appreciated. I, I think, too, a lot of the constituents in these cities are, quote-unquote, voting by moving out. They're moving away. They're taking their businesses elsewhere if they have businesses, and they're moving out of state, out of, you know, out of that city. And I'm not sure at this point that a lot of these cities will ever return to what they were before all of this happened. And it's really sad because there have been some beautiful, beautiful cities that have just been destroyed by all of this garbage. What's distressing to me is that you might have one officer that did that truly did something wrong or acted in a, a way that he should not have, and yet they're crucifying an entire industry of people that are working. And, and you know, officers don't get up of a morning and... And think, oh, well, you know, who can I go and mess with today? Who can I go and shoot today? And, and it's not conducive to what's going on in our country right now. You know, you have bad apples in every line of work, but you don't destroy the entire career path for everyone just because of the actions of one. And so many of the people that are sitting here trying to Monday morning quarterback this have no idea what goes into the hiring process, the training process, the ongoing training that these officers go through every single day. And so many of them have no clue what goes on in the streets for real. They just think it's an episode of law and order. And it's not real. It's not real. And it's very frustrating that these people think they know everything when they don't. They have no clue. Do you think, Lori, it would be helpful for people to do a ride-along or for people to actually do maybe, you know, the situational training that we always had to take every year and what we always gave to our new recruits and stuff? We put them in situations where they'd have to answer a call, be it a disturbance call or a, a rape call or something like that. And we'd put them in those, those scenarios to watch how they reacted and to help them learn from them. Do you think that would be helpful for the public if there was some kind of program for that? Absolutely. I give kudos to the people who have been very outspoken against the police and that actually accepted an invitation to go through like a citizen's academy or situational training to give them an idea of what you officers deal with on a daily basis and having to make 
split second decisions. And I think it has been, from what I've seen, it's been a real eye opener for a lot of people. And I think that that should be uh, open to everybody. Everybody should have access to that. Lori, what do you want the police officers who listen to this podcast to know? We love you. Got your back. We got your six. So, you know, you, you have more support than you have any idea about because the majority are are silent. The majority of the people are are silent, but they absolutely support our law enforcement and they love them and they want to see them safe. I, I get people that come up and, and talk to me all the time about that because they know that we are a blue family and, you know, they say that they pray for us all the time. So you guys are loved. Just keep doing the good work. Well, thank you, Lori. I appreciate you coming on the show, honey. I think you said it very, very well, and I'm glad to have your perspective on the show. Even though I left law enforcement a while back, it's uh, it's still, like you said, I, I bleed blue, and I still I still feel like a cop. I don't think I'll ever not feel like a cop. So thanks again for being on the show. All right, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, folks, let's move on to today's story. As I said at the top of the show, this is a case I worked about 18 years ago where I did the computer analysis. In the story, I do discuss some graphic content, so please keep that in mind before listening. In Northwest Missouri, on December 16, 2004, Bobby Joe Stinneth, a 23-year-old married pregnant woman, was found brutally murdered in the foyer of her home, and her unborn fetus had been cut from her womb. In the days and weeks ahead, computer evidence would play a major role in discovering who committed the crime and their reason for doing so. Suffice it to say, here in the beginning of this story, Bobby Joe was a complete victim. In other words, she wasn't a troubled young woman. She wasn't involved in any activity that would cause some people to find fault with her life choices. She was a happily married woman with a wonderful husband named Zeb, and they were expecting their first child. Both had good jobs at the local Harley-Davidson plant. They had their whole lives ahead of them. Bobby Joe's only fault in any of this story was that she was in the wrong place at the wrong time with two things working against her. She was eight months pregnant, and she was going to have a baby. At the time of Bobby Joe's murder, I was a computer forensic examiner working for the United States Attorney's Office for the Western District of Missouri. I was assigned to the FBI's Regional Computer Forensics Laboratory. On the day of the murder, I was out of state helping coach a moot court session for the FBI. I received a phone call from our lab director, Mike Jacobson, who informed me of the horrific crime. I asked him if I could work the case since I was returning home later that day, and he agreed. Much of the information in this episode can be found online, but I thought I'd provide a little background for you as well. Bobby Joe was an active member of an online message board where members talked about their hobby of raising and selling rat terrier dogs. This murder, as you can imagine, made national news. In fact, this was the very first time in history that an Amber Alert, normally used for finding missing children, was enacted for a fetus that had not yet been born prior to going missing. You can thank Congressman Sam Grace for that. And it worked. Within 24 hours, the police and FBI received a tip from one of the members of the same Rat Terrier message board Bobby Joe was on. She said that Bobby Joe, on the day of the murder, had an appointment to sell a rat terrier to someone. The tipster said the person's email address was fisherforkids at hotmail.com. That's Fisher, F-I-S-C-H-E-R, the number four, 
kids at hotmail.com. Think about that one for a while. At approximately the same time the tip came in, Sergeant Jeff Owen from the Missouri State Highway Patrol, who was also assigned to the RCFL, began conducting a forensic examination of the victim's computer. During his exam, Sergeant Owen quickly found cached web pages on the victim's computer hard drive, showing numerous posts from the Rat Terrier message board. With the information provided by the tipster, he located several posts between Bobby Joe and the Fisher for Kids Hotmail account, including one where they set up a meeting at Bobby Joe's house where Fisher for Kids would purchase a dog from her. This meeting would take place on December 16th, the day of the murder. Sergeant Owen also noted this particular message board software didn't only show the email address of the person who posted, but each post also displayed an IP address belonging to the original sender. For those of you who aren't familiar with the term IP address, it stands for Internet Protocol Address. Simply put, it's like a phone number for a computer. In order to get online, every computer needs to have an IP address to communicate with other computers. IP addresses are assigned by Internet service providers, such as Comcast, Google Fiber, and AT&T, to name a few. IP addresses are owned or leased by service providers who check them out to customers so that we can access the Internet. A simple Internet search can reveal which company owns a particular IP address. Sergeant Owen ran a query on the IP address captured by the message board software and assigned to the Fisher for Kids post. The IP address was owned by Earthlink, an Internet service provider popular at the time. At that point, detectives obtained and served a subpoena to Earthlink for the customer that the IP address was assigned to when the Fisher for Kids message board post was created. In a very quick turnaround, almost unheard of in 2004, Earthlink provided the subscriber's name and address. The IP address was assigned to the account of Kevin Montgomery from Melbourne, Kansas. Detectives and agents quickly responded to the Montgomery home and upon arrival made contact with Lisa Montgomery, who was holding what appeared to be a newborn baby in her arms. As detectives were asking Lisa Montgomery a few questions about the baby, it quickly became apparent that her story was not making sense. Since I wasn't at the scene, I won't paraphrase what I was told later, but during the interview, law enforcement took custody of the baby, and Montgomery voluntarily went with detectives for further questioning. Law enforcement also recovered at least one cell phone and a computer from the home. The computer was an early model Apple iMac with a half clear and a half turquoise blue shell. Now, I don't recall if I received the computer the same day or the next, but based on Sergeant Owen's exam of the victim's computer, I realized Montgomery's system could contain a gold mine of forensic artifacts related to the murder. The first step in my examination, after noting the condition of the computer and documenting the model and serial numbers, was to remove the hard drive. The hard drive is the physical device within a computer that holds your pictures, documents, and other files. We remove the hard drive so that a forensic image can be created. In dead box forensics, or forensics done on a machine that is turned off, we work from an image or forensic copy of a computer hard drive. This ensures that the data on the original hard drive is not altered in any way. The imaging process is performed in a manner that the hard drive data remains unaltered, Forensic software is then used to identify evidence through a number of techniques and processes. The computer software used in this case was NCASE. It's one of several forensic software programs, but it's the one I use most effectively. 
I was an NCASE instructor for several years, so my familiarity with the tool was extensive. Because the Internet was used in this crime, one of the first processes that I performed was to recover Internet history from allocated and unallocated space. What I discovered was curious. The file that contains the history was huge. It was so big I couldn't open it with available tools, so their history was broken down into smaller, manageable files. When conducting an initial review of the history, I found the reason the history file was so large was there were numerous copies of each entry. As an example, if Montgomery had done a search for houses, there were up to 100 duplicate entries with the exact date and time. Now, I had no idea at the time what caused this, but I wanted to figure it out, or at least have a plausible explanation as to why it occurred prior to trial. I subsequently discussed the issue with Dean Brown, a police officer and lab examiner from the Lawrence, Kansas Police Department. Dean is a great examiner with a brilliant investigative mind. After a lot of conversations and research, we came up with a plausible explanation. Apple computers were, and still are, very keen to minimize fragmentation as it slows down file access and degrades the user experience. Fragmentation is the process where a file is written to a computer hard drive in pieces and various places instead of contiguously, meaning back-to-back. On smaller hard drives, which were common in 2004, fragmentation occurred a lot as computers needed to make the most of the space that was available. We believe that the Internet browser on the iMac, which stores the history in a file, was designed in a way that would minimize fragmentation. To accomplish this, every time the browser was closed and then reopened, the operating system would check the available free space existing just after the browser history file. If the system didn't think there was enough free space following the current location of the history file to keep the file intact, it would make an entire copy of the Internet history file and copy it into a place in the hard drive that did have enough room for the file to grow. It would then delete the first copy. If this was done enough times, it would account for the large number of duplicate history entries I encountered. Lisa Montgomery was a prolific user of the Internet. With the help of a friend, Dwight Rhodes, a Kansas City, Missouri police sergeant, we were able to use a deduplication process to remove all of the duplicates and provide much cleaner results to the attorneys. More on what we found later. So I mentioned unallocated space a minute ago. For those of you joining this podcast for the first time, unallocated space is the area of a hard drive where files can be written. Allocated space is the area that holds files that you can see and access when you turn on your computer. When a file is deleted, the content doesn't go away. Just the pointers to the file are deleted. It's like a card catalog in the library. The card shows you the bookshelf and location where the book resides. If the card was removed, the book is still on the shelf in the same location. In the same way, if I delete the pointer to a file on a hard drive, the file is still on the drive in the same location. What appears to be gone from the user's standpoint is actually just sitting in the hard drive waiting to be overwritten. These files can be found during a forensic analysis through keyword searching and carving for specific file types. On Montgomery's hard drive, unallocated space evidence would play a significant role. During the examination, I was reviewing some pictures, possibly taken from the mobile phone recovered at Montgomery's residence. One picture caught my eye. It was the suspect, Lisa Montgomery, sitting on a couch with a baby in her lap. She was reading a letter, 
and I was able to see she had a Band-Aid on her left index finger. A closer look at this picture revealed what appeared to be dried blood in the corner of the fingernail. It was later revealed to me that the blood was Bobby Joe's. A request was made to me by the U.S. Attorney's Office, who was prosecuting this death penalty case, to identify if the suspect knew Bobby Joe, and, if so, how. I conducted numerous keyword searches across the evidence in this case for a number of different terms. I also looked for email, pictures, video, internet history, and other user artifacts that might help to build a timeline of activity by the suspect. In unallocated space, I located an email referencing a dog show in Abilene, Kansas, in April of 2004. The email also referenced a picture that appeared to have been attached to the email. The text in the email identified Lisa M. as the second person from the left and Bobby and Zeb as the last two people on the right side of the picture. Also on the hard drive, in close proximity to this email, I also found a picture. In the spot, second from the left, was Lisa Montgomery. The two people farthest over to the right were Bobby Joe and Zeb Stinnett. I also found a second photo, apparently from the same dog show, showing Montgomery and Bobby Joe in the same group. Further investigation revealed that Lisa Montgomery was part of the same Rat Terrier message board as Bobby Joe. Based on this information, it was possible that the Abilene Dog Show was where Montgomery found out Bobby Joe was pregnant, but I have never personally confirmed that. Be that as it may, Bobby Joe was eight months pregnant when she was killed, and April 2004 was eight months prior to her death in December. As my examination proceeded, I found quite a few emails in unallocated space, some showing contact between Montgomery and Bobby Joe. There were also emails and other online posts where Montgomery was talking about being pregnant herself. In one post from the message board, Montgomery had attached a picture where she and her husband had gone to the Renaissance Festival and they had dressed up in medieval clothing. In the post, she had commented that it was very difficult leaning over because of her pregnancy. It was impossible to tell if she was pregnant by looking at the picture as she was barely leaning over. Certainly not enough, in my opinion, to be difficult for a pregnant woman. In other emails to different people, she talked about rubbing her belly when she was upset, putting a playpen together, and sharing when her baby was due. An email was found where Pampers.com was happy to confirm her registration. In another post, Montgomery said she was expecting a baby in December the same month of Bobby Joe's murder. Under normal circumstances, this behavior would not be unusual. However, this was unusual activity considering Lisa Montgomery was not pregnant. Montgomery's ex-husband, Carl Bowman, testified in court that she had a tubal ligation in 1990 and was unable to have children. It came out at trial that she had a number of false pregnancies, always citing some reason for not having the baby. So, what made this time different? During my examination, I found an email from her ex-husband. The contents of the email appeared to reference a number of times where she had been threatening him. Bowman specifically asked her how her husband, his parents, and the community would feel if they knew she was never pregnant and had lied about so much to so many. He also said false documents would be a felony and felt it would be enough for him to take custody of his children. This may have been the motive for why Montgomery needed the baby. 
During the examination, I had received information that Montgomery had been showing pictures of an ultrasound around town. By carving unallocated space, I recovered an ultrasound picture with the name Barbara Smith in the lower left corner. I have changed this name to respect the woman's privacy. A hospital name and date were posted in the upper left corner. Just after finding this picture, I found a second ultrasound picture, almost identical to the first. However, the name had been changed to Lisa Montgomery, the hospital changed to CIS Med, and the date changed to May 29, 2004. Examining the second picture closer, I was able to see what modification had been made. Photo editing software had been used to place a black text box in the upper and lower left corners covering the original text. The new text had been added on top of the black box. The modification was not very good as the font size and thickness didn't look anything like the original. Even though I had the ultrasound pictures, I did not have the name of the pictures or their creation dates. As I said earlier, when pictures and files in general are carved from unallocated space, they do not retain their names, nor do they maintain any other attributes like created, access, and modified times. This wasn't a huge issue based on the obvious content of the pictures, but I got lucky. Just after finding the pictures, I discovered a printing artifact. When someone prints a picture or a document, as far as the printer is concerned, it's a picture. The picture is temporarily saved to a spool file, which is then sent to the printer for printing. Once the printing process completes, the spool file is deleted. Along with the spool file, which is the actual picture itself, there is what's known as a shadow file, or for lack of a better term, it's a text file, which contains information on the print job. This information consisted of the name of the printer driver, the logged on user at the time of printing, and most importantly, the name of the file printed. The printer appeared to be an Epson, the logged-on user was Lisa Montgomery, and the name of the picture, changed for privacy issues, was babyultrasound.jpg. I took this picture name and did a search across the internet history recovered from Montgomery's hard drive. The search revealed the picture came from the website www.husband-wife.com. Again, I've changed this name for privacy reasons. I attempted to access that website to find the original image and ascertain if it was the same as the one I found prior to modification on Montgomery's hard drive. The site was no longer active, so I did the next best thing. I went to a site called archive.org, also known as the Wayback Machine. The site keeps backups or snapshots of websites taken at different points in time. I ended up finding a snapshot of the website, but the pictures were not saved. However, placeholders for the pictures were intact on the site. I hovered on one of the placeholders with my mouse and saw that the name of the picture was the same name as the name in the printer's shadow file. Just to be thorough, I was able to track down and contact the husband who owned the site. He still had the picture I described and sent it to me. I hashed the picture he provided and the one found on the hard drive. Hashing is like a digital fingerprint of an electronic file. Both pictures were found to be identical. During the examination of Montgomery's hard drive, I found evidence of a number of Google searches that had been conducted. Unassisted home birth, emergency C-section, 36-week home birth, ultrasound 16-week, ultrasound twin 4 months, 
ultrasound twin 16 week. Registering birth, pitocin, oxytocin, and blocking number caller ID. In reference to these keyword searches, I had found evidence that Montgomery had attempted to watch a video on performing a C-section, but was unsuccessful. It also appeared from the searches involving ultrasound twin that Montgomery may have been looking at another possible victim who was pregnant with twins. Pitocin and oxytocin are drugs used to induce labor. You remember earlier when I was explaining the large amount of internet history, right? Well, late in the computer examination, a prosecutor asked me if I could testify as to whether or not the internet history was deleted intentionally or as part of an automatic deletion process. It was a good question. If the answer was that she intentionally deleted some of the history, this could help show intent and premeditation, a crucial factor in death penalty cases. Without premeditation, there would be no capital murder charge. I got to work on trying to see if the facts would support the intentional deletion of any of the history. What I found was interesting. I discovered that Montgomery had set up the Fisher for Kids at Hotmail.com account on December 15th when she contacted Bobby Joe to set up the appointment to buy a dog from her. Montgomery also searched for blocking caller ID as a member of the message board had suggested she call Bobby Joe to set up an appointment. I found that all references to the creation of the email account, the email she sent to Bobby Joe, and the search for blocking caller ID had all been selectively deleted. Now by that, I mean the internet history before and after those entries was still allocated and intact. Only those entries were deleted. Additionally, on December 16th, just before she left her house to drive to Skidmore, Montgomery conducted a search for Fairfax, Missouri. This is a town close to where Bobby Joe lived, and she may have been using it as a reference point. This entry was also selectively deleted. As I said at the beginning of this story, I realized that the computer may have held a gold mine of evidence. As you can see, that turned out to be true. But in my opinion, none of the evidence found so far was as chilling and impactful as the following. It was an email Montgomery had sent to several people four days before Bobby Joe was murdered. I'll read this email verbatim and then comment on it, quoting Montgomery's email. I had doctor visit this morning. Some of you may remember we lost a daughter at birth about a year and a half ago due to extreme RH disease, as well as other complications. This time with two, well, I get to visit doc quite often. Blood titer tests have become the norm. I have made it to term, but have faced the possible loss of one of the babies. We have known for some time, but it was made real this morning with only one heartbeat. Ultrasound confirmed this soon after. We could have delivered before now, but time was being granted for a remaining baby to grow stronger, as they were both very small. I know nothing else could be done that my doctors have not already considered. I am to go in tomorrow for medication to ripen my cervix, yuck, and then if nothing, on Thursday, they will induce. This email contains several important points to consider from an evidentiary stance. First off, Lisa Montgomery never saw a doctor about her pregnancy. During trial, the prosecution provided testimony and forged documents purporting to come from her doctor. That doctor testified and said he had never seen Montgomery for this pregnancy. Secondly, Montgomery referenced twins. Does this mean she was also stalking another possible victim who was pregnant with two babies? 
We never found an answer to that question. Third, Montgomery referenced going in to have her cervix ripened and then delivering on Thursday. This email was dated Monday, December 13, 2004. The cervix ripening would have taken place on Tuesday, December 14, 2004. Thursday was December 16, 2004. That was the day Bobby Joe was brutally murdered and her baby was cut from her womb. This reference strongly supports premeditation. I submitted the evidence from my analysis to the prosecution in this case. The case went to trial in 2007, and I testified for about six and a half hours. I'm proud of that testimony. I'm proud because my testimony was the truth. I didn't play word games with the defense, and I didn't try to make a piece of evidence more than what it actually was. There was a lot of evidence on the computer that looked promising to use at first glance, but through testing, research, and validation, I was unable to reach a conclusion that I felt comfortable testifying to in those cases. In those instances, the data wasn't used. As computer forensic examiners know, it helps to have an investigative mindset. Follow the trail of the evidence. That, along with training and experience, are what makes computer examination results reliable and dependable in court. Lisa Montgomery was found guilty of capital murder and the death of Bobby Joe Stinnett in 2007. Fourteen years later, in January of 2021, her sentence was carried out. I want to thank everyone for listening to this episode of the Computer Crime Chronicles podcast. As always, if you have questions or comments, you can send us email at computercrimechronicles at gmail.com. Take care, and we'll see you in the next episode.